Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. What we're talking about, it's been tried so many times, but it doesn't seem to stay. Ah, that is a wonderful. You you must have been the prompt, Trenton, <laughs> that got me to thinking about this. And, and what I did the week before I had done the restoration movement and said, okay, the restoration movement began as a peace church. And then they lost it through various causes. You know, you could trace it to the Civil War, to World War I, but especially to World War II. By the time you get through World War II, the Christian church cannot be said to be pacifist in, in any way even though when it began, even though it was not a creedal church, nonetheless, every major leader that I know of were pacifists. That story repeats itself, I would claim, and I'm happy if any of you know of an exception, because this is a claim I've never heard anybody make, so I'm thinking, well, if I'm the first to make it, it probably can't be true. So let me make it, and then you guys can knock it down. And that is that every group, that church group, indigenous to the United States that I could think of, began as a peace church, began as pacifist. That's step one. Step two, all of them no longer are pacifist. And by indigenous, you know, that's kind of a questionable thing, but things like the Assemblies of God, the Pentecostals, Assemblies of God actually were a creedal church. So that originally, you know, uh, before 1967, they were a officially a, a peace church. And the same process occurs. You know, when I was a boy, for I had a girlfriend, actually. She was Assemblies of God. So I would, I would go to church with her. Part of the things that we're thinking about in the peace churches that are there in some of these groups is there's a clear church world distinction. You know, this isn't there in Lutheranism or Calvinism, but it is there in the peace churches. That is that we are a kind of embattled group, or we're over and against the world. We're a unique people. How, and, and of course, there's not simply one way to conceive of that, but in some way you conceive of the church being a, a counterculture, a peculiar people, And that was true in the Assemblies of God, but it was true not in any profound sense of an understanding of the world. The world, you know, nobody was going around talking about American nationalism as the world. And so what the Assemblies of God that I went to, I remember there was a guy from the Philippines, he came and he was a missionary. He was actually a Filipino, but he was a missionary to the headhunters. And he talked about the heads, you know, that the spirits would talk through the shrunken heads. But that that was the kind of thing. The world was this demonic world. And so we spent a lot of time, you know, we had, we'd have to cast the demons out and all that. The world was kind of an uncomplicated thing. My, my point here is there was not an Anabaptist development of the sense of 
a kind of Constantinian world or a kind of false Christianity. You know, in the Pentecost, the Pentecostals and the uh, Christian churches are very similar in the, you know, in the Pentecostal churches, well, there's the day of Pentecost and then the church fell. And so all that other stuff, it doesn't matter. And then there's the Pentecostal movement in the United States in which the church is restored. And whatever happens in between, it doesn't matter. But that sounds a lot like the Christian churches, maybe not quite so extreme, but maybe so. I don't know. You know, the church starts in 33 AD, and then they, you know, all that Catholic stuff. And then in the United States, Alexander Campbell and Barton W. Stone, they begin to restore New Testament Christianity. That's a fairly common theme in the United States. You know, there are many restorationist movements who just are dismissive of any kind of tradition, church history. They're not tied into uh, any kind of church structure very much. So the things that you find in the Christian church, you're going to find repeated in all these groups. All, every indigenous group began as pacifist, and every indigenous group failed to maintain their understanding of peace. And that was your question, Trent, right? Why? Well, I just, yeah, I found it kind of peculiar that it almost seems like, I mean, there's some big things that, you know, we might claim as followers of Jesus, like Jesus is Lord, like Jesus is the incarnation of God, and that Jesus uh, presented a gospel of peace, and that there's this, and for some reason, the thing that was able to be tossed aside wasn't that Jesus was Lord or that Jesus was God incarnate, but this whole peace thing. And I'm not sure if it's, you know, because there's more of a practical outworking in people's minds of what it means to be a peaceable church or a peaceable people than it is just to say Jesus is Lord. That should still practically work itself out in your life if you say Jesus is Lord, but it's easier to just use that as a stamp on something than it is to claim this peaceableness and not follow a wave. I didn't know the actual reason behind it. I'm sure there were a plethora of answers as to why each group kind of drifted here and there. But um, yeah, it was just something that was kind of... Well, you you got me to thinking. You spurred my thought. And, and, and you've sent me down a spiraling hole here. The, the obvious answers, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it further than the obvious answers, but the, the Anabaptists, of course, have a long tradition of long-suffering. They have a distinctive culture. Many of them are distinctive linguistically. You know, many of the Germanic groups, like the Amish, continued to use Old German. They had a developed theological understanding. So culturally, they're very separate. That was never true of any of these groups, maybe, you know, a little bit true. That was David Lipscomb wants to get there. There is a kind of impetus to do this. Seventh-day Adventists are sort of there, but then they lose it. The linguistic thing, I think, is certainly important. The Amish still refer to everybody else, though, as the English still plays a role. So I think you could point out many things, but let me, so let me test my claim on you and see if you'll buy it. You see how dangerous it is to ask questions, Trent. I think that atonement theory was key, that what you get in Anabaptist groups is ultimately a return. This is a subtle thing, but I'll make the case. They make a return to a kind of Christus Victor notion of the atonement. 
So first of all, there's this in penal substitution, in Calvinism, but actually in uh, Lutheranism, but even with divine satisfaction, the whole focus is on Jesus' death, and you render his life uh, and ministry superfluous. So a part of the theology that is developing among the Anabaptists, you find it in most of these peace churches, but then you lose it. But I, in other words, they're, they're not making the leap that the Anabaptists are going to make toward a full-blown Christus Victor or recapitulation. I'm never quite sure what we should call. But one of the things that you get in that model is that Jesus is to be imitated. You understand in penal substitution, if uh, Herod had succeeded in killing Jesus as an infant, I don't know that it would have made a lot of difference because you still would have a perfect sacrifice. You really don't need all that life and stuff. Just, you know, go ahead and get the sacrifice over. So in some way to, to have an appreciation of the Gospels in which Jesus is model, I think you have to have an a, atonement theory that will embrace that. Penal substitution, divine satisfaction, I think, in fact, operate just as well with the notion that you're getting in all of these restorationist churches. You know, there there's a kind of naivete that is a good thing in all of this, that everybody's going back and saying, well, they're going back and they're reading the Bible and saying, well, this is obvious that Jesus is teaching peace. I don't know about you. You know, when I was 13 years old, I became a Christian. I sat down and read the New Testament. You know, at 13, I don't know what how good your brain works, but I came to the idea, oh, I, I'm not supposed to be doing violence. I, I mean, that's just there. And I think a, a fresh reading that you get on the American frontier or a fresh reading like you get in those groups that break away from the Roman Catholics, they just all land on peace, right? That just seems to be everywhere. But it's the Anabaptists, the Brethren, you know, or the Mennonites, the Brethren, that are going to hold to it. So I, I think that a key part of this is that there's two events that we've traced. The church in some way succumbs to Constantinianism, but then the church develops an alternative atonement theory with Anselm of Canterbury. So around the turn, you know, 11 of three, you know, both Abelard, their, their lives overlap a little bit. Isn't it interesting that in that century, at that time, you get two, two alternative atonement theories? And of course, they're not in any way related. Abelard is talking about the moral influence theory, and Anselm is talking about divine satisfaction. And of course, Anselm wins the day, ultimately in the Western church. And for the next five centuries, you get nonstop church-sanctioned violence. Bad atonement gives rise to bad practice. And of course, we've talked about that there is always the idea of the exception to the norm. I went to some Anabaptist literature. This is actually an Anabaptist publication. This guy, this is Francis Hebert, is writing this article. He says the Anabaptists on this theory, in other words, he is saying what I'm saying. The Anabaptists develop they redevelop or they rediscover. In other words, I think all these groups that we've named, they did not 
develop a full-blown alternative atonement theory. Alan's right now thinking, well, wait a minute. What about Barton Stone? He didn't buy penal substitution, but Barton Stone didn't convince the Campbells. And so penal substitution still reigns in Christian churches, though somebody sophisticated enough like Barton Stone, you know, he completely rejected it. And so with the, with the Anabaptists, it's not that they're just rejecting it. At least they're rejecting the Calvinist version, and they may be, depending still, they may be accepting the uh, Anselmian version. But the idea is that, of course, step one, you know, in Anabaptists is that where Luther is talking about sola fide, faith alone, and of course what he meant, you can't, no works involved. The Anabaptists are saying the law of Christ is written on our heart. And so with that, there's the works of faith. And of course, that gets some Anabaptist groups that where they're going to get a little carried away with that, and they will become legalistic. But at least, in, in other words, among these groups, there was the idea that Lutheran sola fide was inadequate. And there was also the idea that uh, Anselmian satisfaction theory was inadequate. In other words, they, they may not have out now rejected it. It fits with Luther's theory. It was an, you know, Anselmian theory uh, is a kind of external benefit bestowed by God, regardless of human involvement. It's an exchange between the father and the son. It really doesn't involve people. But what's happening in these peace churches, I mean, almost by definition is we got to do this thing. And, you know, it's never, I think that's true even in the Christian church. Christian churches have been accused, right, rightly so, I think, of a kind of legalism. I mean, there's a fine line here. But the thing that that's springing from is the same thing, and that is that they, there was never the sense that we are simply Protestant or simply Lutheran. The idea is, no, you have to do faith and works go together, not that works save you in any way. You know, if, uh, with uh, Anselm, it's no surprise that you get Calvin and Luther's notion of predestination because it really doesn't have anything to do with people. It's just the will of God who God chooses. And so here is a quote from Milgram Marpeck, and I'm using the original article here. He says, it was far more than a legal transaction. It meant at one Marpeck, I guess, is an early Anabaptist thinker at one with God and referred to all the ways in which God and humans have been reconciled through the work of Jesus. It points not only to Christ's death, but to all the various phases of his activity on behalf of humanity, including his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. They're talking about this. I don't know that anybody's talking about recapitulation. I don't know that that word comes up. But the word that does come up, and I'm not, I don't know that they were familiar with Eastern Orthodox theology. Maybe they were, but they come up with the same word, and that's divinization. Theosis. Yeah, you're, you're saying the Anabaptists have that in their, in their literature? They did. Whoa. Yeah. The idea is, of course, participation in the Trinity. And I'm assuming I'm, uh, it's a translation of a German term. So, you know, but it's the, the same, same concept. And, of course, the idea is that a person responds appropriately to the work of Christ. And so if they don't respond, the atonement's not efficacious. And the work of Christ includes, then, the, the power of the Spirit, 
But of course, you appropriate Christ's work through the power of the Spirit. And I'm thinking peace here. You know, I think that peace just captures this appropriation. We really do this thing. This is over and against both Catholic and Protestant traditions and a forensic doctrine of the atonement in which really all you need is a pure victim. Balthasar Hubmeyer was an Anabaptist theologian who talks about this. He says that the soul is awakened. It's made healthy. It's given freedom to choose the good. It must cooperate with God for the work of Christ to be effective. It must allow itself to be reconciled to God. And so salvation does not take place without human cooperation. Leonard Scheimer, I'm not quite sure how to say his name. He was an early Anabaptist martyr. He was his Franciscan friar, and he converted to the Anabaptists, but they killed him after six months. So he didn't last very long. But he put it this way, after God has revealed sin and brought sorrow unto repentance, he places us naked and bare into the second birth and gives us his spirit and teaches us to love him. That it, I mean, this is not shocking in many ways, that there is growth in the Christian life and salvation is a practical salvation. That is, we actually do this thing. Not that we're working our way to some future estate, but that salvation is this transformation of the human life. And this then, this, this transformation is called divinization by the Anabaptists. So Pilgrim Marpeck emphasized Jesus' humiliation, suffering, sacrifice that brings about liberation. So there's the notion of healing, the notion of liberation, and not simply, oh, your legal status changed. He says, by his patient and innocent endurance of the cross, Christ has, quote, liberated his people from their eternal burden. And so divinization, very much in the Eastern Orthodox, I, I don't know the origin of this word. I just found it in this article. But it's almost like they're, they're discovering it on their own. It means that humans have been freed from the effects of the fall. They've been restored to their image by appropriating the work of Christ. And of course, the divinization or the theosis in Eastern Orthodoxy is you are in communion or in participation with the Trinity. This is Dirk Phillips. He says the believers become gods. Maybe that language is a little offensive. But Jesus puts it that way. And children of the Most High through the new, new birth, the impartation and fellowship of the divine nature, righteousness, glory, purity, and eternal life, they will be taken up into glory even as God is in glory. And so the idea that humanity is brought into communion with the divine. I'm describing an atonement theory that is there among the Anabaptists I don't think it was there in these groups. These groups, including the Christian church, were still too Protestant, maybe. And it certainly fits with Paul's theology. I mean, that we're part of the body of Christ. We participate. We're members of that body. And the idea that Christ's work is not simply in the past, but continues in the church, that we're working out our redemption through the Holy Spirit. And that there, this language, I, I'm curious, I'll say what, 
Marpeck is saying here, and I, I want to see how you respond to it, because I don't know. I think I agree with it. Christ's work in the world is not simply the past. Through the Holy Spirit, God brings about an ontological change within the nature of the person so that the image of God lost in the fall is restored and the believer is made a participant in the divine nature. That's Pilgrim Marpeck. It's just funny. I find that I did four years of my undergraduate in an Anabaptist college and never once heard of the of theosis or divination, divinization. That's why I'm absolutely, I'm kind of shocked at this, that that's, that that actually is part of the, because all those names, you know, Hubmeyer and, uh, you know, Hans Dank and all of the names, part of the Mennonite circle, like we just learned all about their, their ideas and beliefs, but never, I've never heard this before. This is all new to me. By the way, that essay you mentioned by uh, Francis Hebert, Yes. Uh, I just I pulled that up. Her husband was Paul Hebert, considered oh. the, one of the greatest Christian anthropologists that we've ever had. Right, right. Oh, I uh, yeah. Francis is the wife that. Yeah, that's his wife. Oh, okay. Wow. Cool. Wow. Yeah. Well, yeah. You, anyway, carry on. Fascinating. Well, that's kind of my point. Is that this is the crucial distinction between Anabaptists and those groups that gave up the centrality of peace. Now, I'm, I'm happy to, uh, this is a test case, you know. I'm just making this claim. I, but for Anabaptist atonement is not legal. It's not the forensic thing. And I think that our, the various peace churches kind of got beyond that, but I'm not sure they ever did. I'm not sure that they escaped Lutheran and Calvin's or Anselm's atonement theory and they, they didn't paul because when i was in when i was in the this stuff is already so pervasive you know it had taken over so much of our our thinking that even in the college i went to there were some there were some actual um you know almost piperite john macarthur calvinist teaching on the faculty so they had completely lost that sense of of the uniqueness of of the anabaptist vision i think it might have changed i need to go out there it's it's in Abbotsford, it's like uh, an hour, 45 minutes from here. And uh, I don't know where their stand is now, but I think there's probably been a bit of a, a retrieval of trying to re-envision that Peace Church thing. I'm very curious about, you're my informant on this, Tim. I didn't put your name in the blog, but you were my informant. You'll be, you'll be getting a letter from my lawyers regarding that. <laughs> Well, that's why I didn't put your name in the blog. <laughs> I went just reading through the journal, the Anabaptist Journal. They struggled, as you described it, just with maintaining their peace position. You know, you go look at the Assemblies of God. It's very interesting to me. You know, the Assemblies of God, when they started, was an integrated group because they were all poor people. And so blacks and whites were worshiping together, you know. It was kind of a poor man's religion. But, of course, they've worked their way up socioeconomically. And guess what kicks in? Church growth theory. Donald McGavern, you know, is very much tied in at Fuller with Pentecostalism. And so the Pentecostal church is strangely very much a part of what we think now of as, 
you know, church growth, McGavern was a Christian church guy. He was out of the restoration movement. But now it's those two things have blended. And I don't think you can do pacifism and church growth at the same time. Now, you know, I may, maybe there's some exceptions out there. Church growth is the very thing that, you know, it is a kind of thing. Well, we have to use the methods and means of the world in a sense. We have to do what's practical. There's nothing practical about peace or, or pacifism. I think the Christus, we could say the Christus Victor motif. This is still the Francis Hebert. She says it's uh, the motif is evident among Anabaptists. And of course, the idea is that it has a sharp conflict with the world, the flesh, the devil, the religious political structures. Here's a, this is a Peter Reidman spoke about sin as chains by which people are bound by the devil. That's Christus Victor language. He wrote that Christ had come to destroy the work of the devil, had destroyed the power of death, hell, and the devil, and had overcome the devil and had risen again. Devil, the devil and death and had risen again, quote, unquote. Atonement theory, they returned to Christus Victor, even if they didn't completely, I don't think they're doing Calvin, but they're saying, and maybe they're still looking at Anselm, but they're saying it's inadequate. Because the inherent in Christus Victor is that we can be victors. We too can be victors over sin, death, and the devil. And Christ is our example. I think that's key in this, that in all of these groups, Christ is going to be a model. I know that sounds so basic that you may not even, you know, but in Christian churches, nobody goes around. Who was the uh, Sheldon, the guy that in his steps a very popular book in the 19th century. That's the idea, though, that we walk in his steps, that we do. That's a very kind of a holiness kind of notion that we lost. And I think that two things are happening in bad atonement theory. One is that you just make the, uh, you know, obviously the exchange between Christ and God. But then also you get this whole abstraction of God that the discussion of God becomes an abstraction. An abstraction, that almost, I did a, a piece on that, that, you know, the, if you focus on freedom as over and against peace, that enslaves you because actually you lose the, the peace of Christ. I mean, that, that's my first point. Did you guys find it grating? I'm just curious about the word ontology. That you think there's an ontological difference? When you mentioned that, first off, that was one of those things that when I started taking your classes, I had to figure out what that really meant. And just this idea of like my my being or being in general, this ontological status that we have. And then you read that quote uh, that talked about um, theosis, divinization, and things like that. And it just got me thinking about how you know, your discussion with the ego in Romans 7, or just Paul in general saying, you know, it's no longer I who lives, but it's Christ who lives in me, that there is this, it's not just that now Jesus lives in my heart, but like that Jesus is the ontological change that happens in my life, that it's his body, like the reason that he lived his life is so that we could also live in his life, like the life that he lived, the way that he lived, like he wants us to follow him and take up our crosses in that way. So all of that to say, like, ontologically, the church, his people are his body. Like, 
we are his representation through this life we have in the spirit and following his way like that is all a very practical outworking of of that claim and maybe it's too simple to say it's just i guess at times we just stop doing that we stop following jesus and that's why we stop living peaceably yeah i think the reason what you're saying though is that we stop following because the self-sacrifice that christ gave his laying down his life it was a one-time thing he died he had to pay the penalty for sin so why do i need to practice self-sacrifice why do i need to do any of that jesus already did it all it's it was a one-time thing that that's that was just he needed to die because god needed blood he doesn't god doesn't need my blood god doesn't need my self-sacrifice god doesn't need me to lay down my life for others jesus already did it and so it's almost i think that's what gets caught up and that's why like you say paul the life of jesus is really it's just it's superfluous to the gospel it's about getting our sin you know getting dealing with this horrible guilt we all have because we wake up every day feeling God's going to punish us. <laughs> so yeah. let's hide behind our Jesus suit, you know, and all of that nonsense tied in with um, what's that, all that part of their theology, Christ's righteousness and, you know, that whole thing. Imputed where righteousness. Imputation. Yeah. I mean, you know, that, you know where that goes. Yeah. Paul, I, I, I didn't realize whenever you brought this up, how big of a paradigm shift it would be for me. Um, but I feel like this is the discussion, too, of the difference between faith of Christ and the faith in Christ. Yes, that of Christ as an object. Oh, I believe in the stuff that he did. That's very different than the faith of Christ. I have his faith, and I'm going to follow him, which is a literal grammatical difference, and that's... Uh, Richard Hayes. And Richard, Andrew, uh, Richard Hayes. Yeah, Richard Hayes. That's his. That was his PhD dissertation, and he developed that. And he just makes a case that that's. I don't know that you know in every instance, but that's the case in many instances that we've just literally translated it wrong and made Christ an object, when actually the sub. We are in. You know that's clear in a place like Romans eight. We're in the subject position. We're in the position of Christ. I suppose it doesn't have to be one against the other, but faith in has become a position in and of itself over and against the faith of Christ. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I wonder that, you know, if maybe other than the atonement, you know, penal substitution uh, thing, that maybe also, you know, this tendency in, you know, contemporary teaching and preaching we usually center the image of God theology more on the, you know, ontology, human ontology, rather than the human teleology. You know, I think that also gives a huge shift on how people think. You lose the image of God somehow in this transaction between God and Jesus. That is restored, so there's nothing else you need to do. But, you know, we changed that <laughs> in that, you know, we are creatures that have to act as the image of God. And there's a difference and there's a participation with God right, in, right. That, in that process. That, that might be part of the problem, too. Uh, in many churches, there's a, a huge emphasis on, on, on the ontology, not so much on teleology. It's like, well... <laughs> God already changed you, so there's nothing else you, you can or need to do. I like uh, that. Yeah, and that's the danger of using the word ontology, maybe. 
if by this that we mean that, oh, we're just magically made ontologically different, that doesn't sound right. But God is ontologically different than we are. And if we're participating in who God is, then that is the ontological difference. But, of course, we may waver in that. We're still human. We're still finite. So I, I've used that language. I, I may have used that language in class in a sloppy way. I, I can't remember how I might have used it. I think it's true that, yes, participation in God is certainly ontologically different than not participating in God. But that doesn't mean, as you're saying, Alan, that we're some way magically permanently different. No, it is this teleology that is tied to the transformation, the ontological transformation. I could argue against me. I haven't developed my, my argument against me very much, but things that occurred to me as I was saying this, and I didn't look into it. The Quakers, I don't know quite where the Quakers are on all this. And so that may, in fact, that could be a counter argument to what I'm saying. I don't think the Quakers are doing penal substitution, I'll say that. So there may be, there may be some pushback, and I, I would be interested in it because it's a, uh, I'm, I'm just kind of trying to make the case. I'm not saying that it's a, you know, you may put that out there and somebody say, well, that's stupid because there's dot, dot, dot. I don't know. I may not have thought why the argument is fallacious. But that's point one. I'll go to the second point. The second point is not quite so exciting. And that is to kind of develop what is happening. The, the other thing that's taking place in the United States is, is Reinhold Niebuhr. And Niebuhr is a phenomenon unto himself. But in a way, he's a phenomenon that sums up why peace fails for so many of these groups. Reinhold Niebuhr was a pacifist. And then in the 1930s, he sees the rise of Hitler and he recognizes pacifism is inadequate to oppose Hitler, that something has to be done. And so he develops what is called a theological realism. In many ways, he's coming out of the old liberalism. And by liberalism, all we mean here is the idea that, well, it's not biblical authority, it's not church authority, it's just the human authority, that we can look at a situation, we can reason our way, you know, we can look at the circumstance, we can judge for ourselves what's right or wrong. That's kind of, you know, kind of a, a optimistic liberalism was a, a kind of supreme confidence. But Niebuhr was not there. He, at the same time, developed a profound sense of human sinfulness. And this actually gets quite dark because he develops a profound sense of human sinfulness and just the idea that the only thing you get in Christianity is forgiveness. And you really don't get the holiness ideas, you know, in the various groups of being able to do this thing. Niebuhr had a very dark picture of our capacity to do this. And so he has a profound, you got you to admire his, profound sense of sinfulness, that he's not in any way a, a kind of, in that sense, liberal. But there's no real possibility of doing what every Anabaptist and 
uh, all these holiness groups, the Methodists, all these groups uh, seem to believe was a possibility that you can be like Jesus. He's saying, no, you can't be like Jesus. You're sinful. You'll always be sinful. And even in your pacifism, you're sinful because you probably, you know, and so he, he just uh, will focus on that. Uh, he's still going to talk about, you know, the best way to read the Bible is kind of with a, with a Western sensibility. Not that the Bible has any kind of authority, but that it does give us a picture, a true picture of the human condition. But he believes this not just because of the Bible. He believes it because of probably the period he's living through, you know, with the rise of Hitler. And so he's really an apology for mainstream Protestantism. Many people think that, oh, well, Niebuhr is kind of the guy that he saved Christianity because he helped people see it in contemporary terms. So I don't know, you know, John F. Kennedy, uh, Barack Obama, Jimmy Carter, ask them who their favorite theologian was. They are all going to say Reinhold Niebuhr because Niebuhr's a realist. If you're in politics, if you practice Christianity, that's the only kind of Christianity you're going to practice, is one that's realistic. In, in a sense, he captures you know, the people who may have despised Christianity otherwise, because he's quite he's an intellectual. But he wants to, so he wants to make Christianity culturally relevant. I'm quoting Yoder here. And this is Yoder's you know, book that he's doing as a kind of parallel lectures to Bainton. And Yoder says, it is a part of the set, setting things right to see that restructuring theology around the issue of violence and war was the center of his entire enterprise. This subject is the subject that shapes Niebuhr's theology. Niebuhr's entire theology unfolded, I'm quoting Yoder, from his having outgrown pacifism. You know, this is actually, Hauerwas will do the same thing. They're going to talk about Niebuhr as kind of the major turning point in American liberal Protestant theology. Now, the strange thing is they're going to call him neo-Orthodox, but he's not, I don't know quite what that means because he doesn't really fit with Bart or Bruner, or, but maybe just because he has a kind of strong view of sin. But otherwise, he's just kind of a liberal Protestant. He says, we need a doctrine of sin, and we need to be aware of the message of grace. So he has a strong sense of sin, a strong sense of grace, and in between those two things, a kind of realism. And so Niebuhr is, the, you know, your question, Trenton, what happened? In a way, you could just say, well, Niebuhr happened. Today, I don't know if people still read Niebuhr, but at one time he was, you know, he was America's theologian. He becomes the founder of America, what is it, the American Christian Socialist Group. So he's working with trade unions. He's doing a lot with social causes. Let me give you his de description of sin. Sin is not only our situation, it is also our nature. Sin is not only present in some bad guy or some bad institution, it is part of who we are. Sin is even part of the best of us. It is a part of our idealism. It is a part of our basic constitution. We will not become less sinful by becoming more intellectual or more spiritual or more educated. 
These are also occasions for sin. The pervasiveness of sin in human nature, personal, social, is uh, a, a kind of absolute than Yoder's description. So actually, this is quite dark. And of course, that it's on that basis that we talk about him being a realist. It's also on that basis that he talks about a failure of uh, pacifism. He breaks pacifism down into three or into four things. Let me do this and then I'll stop. The absolute pacifist believes in simple obedience to Jesus' clear words. If this is your position, Niebuhr says, God bless you. You cannot promise social effectiveness, nor can you normally be involved in social conflict. Yet if you believe in that simple obedience, your position is consistent. It usually means social withdrawal, but it is what Jesus said. So you have that on your side. So Niebuhr, he admits a full kind of absolute pacifism. He says, yes, that's what Jesus taught. And if you want to be completely irrelevant, that's the way to go. But if you want to be salt and light, you know, if you want to affect anything, then you can't do that. And Yoder talks about this is going to have a huge impact on the Mennonites, that they're going to say, well, see, even Niebuhr says we got it right, that this is what Jesus taught. But he said it also was the impetus for them to be even more irrelevant. <laughs> uh, number two, pacifism is a special vocation. It's not imposed on everybody. They do not say that Jesus' word is the last word for everybody. They say, my calling is to take the, up the path and to live my life that way. But not everybody has to do that. Both of these forms of pacifism can claim to have Jesus on their side, to be consistent and honest. Neither claims to do the world any good. Both are socially irrelevant and modest. Niebuhr thought it was good to have Mennonites around who espouse these forms of pacifism. This is Yoder. Because they make us all feel bad. And that's what the gospel is for. To convince us of sin so we can receive grace's pardon. <laughs> this fits almost with the, the uh, you know, monasteries that they would say, yeah, we're pacifists, but we don't expect everybody to do that. It almost fits with Catholicism, you know, that anybody that was going to pretend to practice the ethics of Jesus had a special vocation, and the rest of us, we don't even pretend to live up to that. His third one is pacifism as effective nonviolence. In his book, Moral Man in Immoral Society, he commends Gandhi for having found a good way for weak people to push the world around. In other words, he's saying this kind of pacifism has nothing to do with the teaching of Jesus. This kind of nonviolence, he even, he even in the 1930s, before Martin Luther King Jr., he predicts, he says, if the black people in the United States are going to gain their rights, it's going to be through the methods of Gandhi. And of course, that's precisely what happens. Martin Luther King studies Mahatma Gandhi. And his point is, it's nonviolent power. It's still a kind of power play. It does not love the enemies. It does not, you know, in a, it only turns the other cheek as a kind of method. 
And so his point is you can't do that. You cannot use nonviolent action as a form of involvement because it's sinful. I'm just telling you, neighbor, I'm not saying this is the truth. I'm telling you the arguments neighbor's making. And then the last one, he says, liberal pacifism just mixes all these types up. And that's why it's wrong. It uses the language of purity and the language of a call to cover pressure tactics and nonviolent coercion. Niebuhr thought that the mix was dishonest. He says you can do one or the other, both are good, but the same person or group should not try to do both. That is the nonviolence of Jesus, the peace of Jesus, and a coercive nonviolence. Now, I don't think this is true, and I think we can easily sidestep this, but how do you sidestep it? That's my question. That's the final question. How do you sidestep it? I convinced you to be Niebuhrites. <laughs> I did this with Matt today. Matt got a little scary on me because he went full-blown Niebuhr on me and, you know, was telling me why, you know, why this whole nonviolent, he was playing the devil, I think, but you can be very powerful in your arguments against the peace of Jesus. But there's a very simple answer to this. And you guys being the brilliant scholars that you are, what's wrong with what Niebuhr is saying? Alan, that's a question for you. <laughs> it's very compelling stuff. And I understand why people would follow him. Can you repeat the question again? So Niebuhr comes up, he says, you can be a follower of Jesus, be a peacemaker, but that has nothing to do with anything. That is to be totally irrelevant because the peace of Jesus is a personal peace. You can try to be effective in society, but that's no longer being true to Jesus. You can do the Gandhi or King thing, but that's not New Testament Christianity. That's just a coercive nonviolence. Or you can be a good Protestant liberal pacifist and kind of say, well, all of this is true. But he says, that's just, that's just a lie. Oh, I didn't think that would stump you all the way it stumped you. First of all, what Niebuhr is, he's misconceiving, like most people, misconceive Christianity. And John Howard Yoder's answer to this, I mean, is obvious in his politics of Jesus. Jesus is never simply concerned with the salvation of souls and people going to heaven. He's never concerned simply with grace and forgiveness. He's concerned with the transformation of society. The Christian movement is a political movement. It's a socio-cultural political movement in which there's a real world kingdom transferal. And the, the very definition of a human being that modern liberalism and even fundamentalism is working with is a false notion of the individual. What is a person? Is a person something apart from the society, something apart from the culture, something apart from the politics? Or in fact, are we constituted in that matrix in which we're all made human beings through the culture and kingdom of which we're a part? So I think Niebuhr and the Christianity of his age, and may the, maybe the Christianity of all these, you know, peace churches that failed, misses the idea that is there that Jesus is establishing an alternative politic, an alternative 
uh, economy. And that's the only way you get different people. In other words, in talking about doing, being a follower of Jesus, I don't know that we can do that on our own, right? Because it ha- it is a formative process. It is something that we are disciplined into. So I think that's the that's the beginning of a very simple refutation. And this is the kind of appreciation that is there, not just among Christians. This is kind of the idea that we're being, you know, there's a kind of redefinition, a re-understanding, a re- going back and reading the biblical text in a very different way, that we're no longer reading it from that whole fundamentalist liberal kind of perspective that was sort of geared to the individual, but we're reading it from this idea of a cosmic transformation. I think that is the problem and the solution. I think from what I'm getting is, in his understanding, is that if pacifism wasn't a, a viable solution to the world's problem, as if it sounds good in paper, <laughs> maybe not so much in practice, but what, what I'm thinking is, you know, maybe like the type of question that sometimes people make against pacifism, like what would be our strategy as pacifists against terrorism or, or mass shooting? And I think in that way, crisis plan, it's a uh, preemptive and proactive plan. As in, you know, the way we stop mass murderers, the way we stop terrorism, the way we stop all those things, is to show them the love of Christ before they pick up the weapons, not after. And I think the way we deal with a lot of these questions is we try to figure out what to do after instead of trying to create this culture before. And so even with Christ, you know, like Paul says, I think it's Corinthians, that love, you know, love protects. And, you know, usually the way we think protecting somebody else is through violence. Well, if this person is doing this other thing to this other person, then maybe I, you know, I could, you know, kill this, kill this person or get rid of that person with some sort of violence. But the way Jesus teaches how to protect this is not through, you know, maybe pulling out a gun to try to shoot another person with a gun, but to jump in front of a bullet for the other person. So it's, it's a, self-sacrificing uh, type of protection to others. So, so in that in that sense, you know, pacifism or nonviolence can be a an impact. But it's something that you know we usually there's a lot of scoffers against pacifism, but not many that try you know have tried it. Or we try to fight violence with violence, but you know, what if we all do agape love? Yeah. If we could get people to do that, then we don't even need to be thinking about, you know, how to stop mass murderers. Yeah. Uh, we already have the solution in Christ. The way that question is asked, I think it's kind of backwards. because uh, It's trying to deal with a, a real, you know, problem. And, and, and so it's trying to find a real solution, but there is a solution if we just haven't tried it yet. We're always trying violence to fight it fight violence. That's not working eventually. We've yeah. seen that for many thousands of years. Yeah. So I think the question should be backwards. Like, How can we prevent 
these things by teaching love. Yeah. It's just making me think because whenever you were talking about how Niebuhr's approach might be easy to fall into or how he would understand it, you mentioned something about forgiveness. And like, I, I get what you're saying, but my immediate thought was like, well, it seemed like Jesus forgave people and then he did things to solidify or validate his ability to forgive as the son of God um, so that there was this element of a forgiveness involved in salvation. You know, I'm not saying that, you know, obviously you're not saying there's not forgiveness, but I think the way that we're tempted in our, in my surroundings to think about that is that that ontological change that one time now you have been given imputed righteousness you are now righteous before god he doesn't see your sins anymore you've been forgiven you know go in peace but maybe another way to think about that is even like with the paralytic or whoever you want to use an example that he specifically said you know your sins are forgiven is that he's restoring them to their community like he's forgiving them of their their sins in a way that allows them to have a right not just to have a forgiven status but have a right relationship with god and with the people around them and that's more of the social aspect that you're kind of speaking about in terms of what salvation means and how it impacts the world around us it's not just something that happens in us it happens through us i guess Yeah, yeah that's great i think that's the answer that that if you start where Niebuhr starts, he won the argument. He already won the argument. Uh, and I, that's always the case. That's the case with all the what-if scenarios. But if you start with Christianity and that who God is in an alternative kingdom and even an alternative reality, in other words, that's really what's being posed here, are two realities pitted against one another. The, the more I get into this, the, the more I'm coming to the conclusion that to not practice this peace is to not worship the God who is the Father of Christ. I can't see how you can be a violent worshiper of God. I understand we're all imperfect, but it just seems like we're really describing in the atonement theories, but even in the practice, the way you practice a violent Christianity is you're, you're succumbing to a violent reality. And you may believe, you know, I don't know that belief or unbelief in, is really the issue here. Because, you know, a lot of people believe in God. But the God they believe in is, a, is the violent God that is, coheres with their reality. And so what you're, both Alan and Trenton, what you're describing, this reality and this God, I guess they just go together. And you, it, to separate them, you know, you may, uh, I, I think you lose both. Good. Thanks, good. Paul. Let's think about it. Very interesting. Okay. Good. Good. Howard Boss does not like Niebuhr, right? He's definitely, he thinks he's the baddie, right? <clears throat> that was his big thing was to be anti-Niebuhr. Yeah. Yeah. He was the, he was the boogeyman. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. And I think Thanks, he's Paul. excellent. Yeah. yeah. He's taking after Yoder now. Are you in a bunker or is that just a picture or what? Like I see a bed, uh, I see a, a. That's just a picture. That's <laughs> room there. I thought you were like in some sort of a, a bunker with a. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's he lives, funny. 
He lives in a barracks, yes. I see Carl yeah, comes through the matrix now and then. So. Yeah, every yeah. now and then there's a glitch. A harvest gold fridge, that's amazing. <laughs> All right, guys, see you later. All right, see you next week. Take care. Good, Tim. Uh, go in peace. Good, good to see you. Thanks, everyone. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.